0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Uh, as you're turning there, I want you to think about what yesterday was. Who knows what yesterday was? Yeah, who said that? Hey, Emma, you said that? What happens on Groundhog's Day? If he sees it. She's kind of scared, goes in, and spring's not going to come for six more weeks. But if it's cloudy, doesn't see it, then which is going to come sooner, right? And uh, across the land, there are holiday celebrations on uh, Groundhog's Day. I remember Yvonne, when she was in high school, I didn't know her back then, but I've seen pictures. You made Groundhog's Day like this big to-do. Your friend did, and you joined happily. And one time, even she made a Groundhog's Day cake. I remember seeing that. That's how I know. And they would just February 2nd was the day of celebrating. Now, why they would do that in California, I'm not quite sure. Because we have reason to celebrate. But despite all of the despite all of the celebrations, there's none bigger than what takes place in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Do you know what takes place there? They have a gopher there. Punxsutawney uh, gopher, a groundhog. Punxsutawney Phil. And uh, this is probably the world's most famous groundhog. And um, that's probably where the media focuses attention, right here in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. And though the town has only 6,000 residents, on February 2nd, the celebration swells to thousands. And uh, in fact, they even need to have buses cart people in to where the groundhog's cave or hole or, or den or, or whatever it's called wherever that is, for the big celebration, which begins before the sun comes up, actually. And uh, it's a merry-making time. They even have a, a club there um, at Phil's Borough, Punxsutawney Phil's Borough is what they call it. And uh, in fact, even this early Saturday morning, I read this in the Tribune on, on Sunday, on yesterday, um, Lieutenant Governor Jim Colley of Pennsylvania said, this is the most important weather prediction to be found anywhere in the globe was taking place. Yesterday And after sunrise, the Groundhog Club president, Bill Dealey, this top hat in his tuxedo, had a few words with Puxetani Phil. And they, they talked with each other and then they gave the report of the weather in the spring. And I quote now from Groundhog.org. On this February 2nd, 2013, 127th annual trek of the Puxitani Ground Club, Groundhog Club at Gobbler's Knob, Puxitani Phil, the king of the groundhogs, seer of seers, prognosticator of prognosticators, weather prophet without peer, was awakened from his burrow at 7.28 a.m. with a tap of the president's cane. Phil and President Dealey conversed in groundhog ease. And Phil directed him to the chosen prognostication scroll. And the president tapped the chosen scroll and directed Phil's prediction to be proclaimed. My new knob entrance is a sight to behold like my faithful followers strong and bold. And so ye faithful, there is no shadow to see and early spring for you and me. And there erupted then a big praise. Well, I hope he's right. I'm ready for winter to be done. We're getting a winter. Um, and it's, it's been cold. It's been ready to be done. It's very interesting here about the groundhog's prediction. Though he says spring will come early, what was the prediction? Still we got some winter before the spring comes. In fact, whatever, whatever he's going to prognosticate, we're still going to have winter some and then, and then we'll have the spring come. And um, in our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus Christ make predictions about the future as well. My message is entitled "Forecasts of the Future." And in some measure, Jesus' message is the same as the groundhog's. The groundhog predicted, has predicted weeks of winter, and then spring will come. Jesus is predicting the same thing. He's predicting terrible times of trouble, and then the spring comes. The spring comes when Jesus comes to rescue His people from their trouble. Let's hear what Jesus had to say. Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 27. We have a big chunk of Scripture today, but God will be faithful. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He is there, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will gather, he will send forth the angels, and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. In these verses, we see the the terrible times that take place. And yet, we also see the, the spring that comes when Jesus returns for His people. So, let's begin my first point this morning. The times will be terrible. Some bad news. Some sorrowful times. We see the terrible times beginning with Jesus mentioning here in verse 14. The abomination of desolation. Now, Of all the signs that Jesus has put forth of the end in Mark chapter 13, this one is unique. The other signs are are things that have happened and continue to happen and keep happening and will happen always. Like in verse 5, Jesus spoke about people misleading you. There are always people being misled. There's another false prophet. There's another false Christ. There's another false teacher. People are always being misled into false ways. In verse 7, Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars. This takes place all the time. Rare has been the time in history where there's not been any war. And um, people have identified a few times in that, but certainly there are rumors of war. Even when all is at peace, there are rumors of wars. It happens all the time. In verse 8, Jesus told of earthquakes and famines. Earthquakes and famines have happened since the beginning, not the beginning of time, since the fall. They have happened. It's just, just constantly, the, the earth we live in is a fallen world and we'll have disasters like that. Persecution, verses 9 through 13 that Jesus speaks about here. Christians have always been persecuted. I mean, from, from quickly after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended, you read the book of Acts and you see the persecution coming on Christians. It is not abated until this day. And so all of these signs of the end that Jesus gives are, are all just things that happen all the time. And yet, here the abomination of desolation in verse 14 is different. This is a a specific event in history. Or to be maybe more accurate, several specific events in history. The abomination has taken place several times. It may take place again. It's not like the other signs that Jesus gives, right? But it, but it's, it's one time. And furthermore, this sign is unique because it, it ties it to a location. Look at verse 14. It says, When you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Here you see a specific location. This is instructions given to specific people. The Jewish people who were in Judea, where the abomination of desolation will happen and then you flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation won't happen in Washington, D.C. or in Moscow, Russia. It will happen in Judea. Now, the big question is this. What does it refer to? It's a million dollar question. I think Jesus gives a hint though when He says in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, and then He has these words in parentheses, let the reader understand Now, at this point, the New American Standard fails us, I think. Um, I have a a red-letter Bible. I know the Pew Bibles aren't red-letter, but I have a red-letter Bible, which just means the words of Jesus are in red. And um, the words, let Jesus understand in the American Standard, are black. And the translators by that mean that Jesus spoke these words, but Mark inserted this in there so as to help us understand what he's talking about. But the ESV and the NIV don't do that. Uh, They keep those words read as well, meaning that they understand that that's the word of Jesus. I think that's the best way to understand it. So in other words, Jesus says this, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so Jesus, I think, says, let the reader of Scripture understand or particularly let the reader of Daniel understand what I'm talking about when I talk about the. Abomination of desolation. Because this phrase, abomination of desolation, occurs, or something very close to it, in Daniel four times. In chapter 8, verse 13, chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11, the abomination of desolation occurs there. Now, if we had time, we could go back into Daniel and look at the context of each of these and read them like I did this week when it said, let the reader understand. I just read through the whole book of Daniel this week and really just kind of went slowly over it, was refreshed and encouraged and confused because it's a difficult book of the Bible, but really looked again at these references, the abomination of desolation. And let me just give you a synopsis of my study. You could do this at home. I encourage you to. It'd be great. Two of the four references to the abomination of desolation Refers to the desecration that took place in the temple just after Greece came to power, several hundred years before the coming of Christ. And so Daniel wrote his book, like um, whatever, five or six hundred B.C. And these are things that took place about 300 B.C., if you will. So several hundred years in the future to Daniel's time, uh, they took place. One of the references in Daniel chapter nine. Um, may lead us to believe that the abomination of desolation took place at the time of Christ, near the time of Christ. Um, It's associated near the time of Messiah. Now, their Bible interpreters think maybe it was there. Sometimes they think that's still in the future yet to come, but it's associated with the Messiah anyway. And then the last one in Daniel 12, verse 13 is unclear. I I don't know when. There's no time frame, no time reference on that. Maybe that's a future one. Maybe that refers to a past. So, in other words, you've got the abomination of desolations happened twice for sure in history. Well, the references, two of those times, it, it's referenced once in history at least. Uh, perhaps near the time of the Messiah and maybe in the, the future. Um, but the point is this, it's not something that occurs all the time. There is a specific event that takes place. Now, when you try to figure this out, as you read through the book of Daniel, there is a clue that helps us. Every time the abomination of desolation is mentioned in the book of Daniel, it talks about the sacrifices being stopped. So, and somehow, the abomination of desolation happens and the sacrifices are stopped. You remember the Jewish people had a, had a temple that they had and they had sacrificed consistently to, uh, to God for their sins. But every time the abomination of desolation happened, the sacrifices stopped. So, you just ask, what would cause the Jewish people to stop their sacrifices? Well, one is just apostasy. They no longer believe what the Bible says. They no longer believe about uh, offering sacrifices to the Lord as the Old Testament had, had talked to them. Um, and just kind of, you know, they're into their other gods rather than into the God of of the Bible. And that happened during the days of Manasseh. Manasseh did so much pagan worship and out of worship that the, that the temple just kind of came into disrepair. And it took then Messiah's grandchild, Josiah, to find the Bible even again, because it was lost somewhere deep in the temple. So that could happen. The sacrifices are stopped. Um, I'm not sure if they were actually stopped during the reign of Manasseh, but they were certainly insignificant. But also they could stop if a foreign nation comes and destroys the temple and thereby you don't have a place to sacrifice anymore or at least destroy the altar. Um, That could happen, and that indeed happened on several occasions in the history of Israel where the sacrifices were stopped. Now, the the two references in Daniel referring to uh, the the time uh, when Greece took power took place in 2nd century B.C. So it took place about 175 B.C. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power in Syria and in 170 B.C. he enacted a decree that said everybody needs to present themselves four times a year to pay formal homage to himself as a senior goddess of the Seleucians. So, people need to gather to worship Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, the Jews, of course, hated that law, did not obey that law, and so Antiochus Epiphanes went to squash them and squash the rebellion. And so, in 168 B.C., he went into the temple. Okay? This was a, a king. He went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar. Now, For Jewish people, of course, pigs are unclean. They shouldn't be eaten. Of course, the pig was never to be sacrificed. He did that and then he erected another altar of of Zeus on top of the Jewish altar. And thereby the sacrifices were stopped and that is called the abomination of desolations when the most holy place on the planet Earth was defiled and desecrated. And that took place. And, And in fact, Daniel 8 had predicted that it would take place, called it a transgression of horror... And so accurate, by the way, was this prediction that many people say, no, Daniel must have written after the fact because it was so clear and so defined and so detailed. But I think that's just what prophecy is like. So that's what two events in Daniel, two of the four descriptions of the abomination of desolation describes. In Mark 13, Jesus says to his disciples that they're going to see this take place right when you see the abomination of desolation standing when you see this. And indeed, 40 years after Jesus said these things, a very similar event took place. Josephus, a historian around the time of Jesus, shortly afterwards, tells how the Romans came and made sport of the altar of the Jews. The Romans came in. They elected a high priest named Phanias, And Josephus said that he was a man not only unworthy of the high priesthood, but he did not know well what the high priesthood was. And they adorned this man with uh, sacred garments and hailed him as a high priest. And basically, they were just mocking the high priesthood. And the priest who beheld this mockery, shed tears and lamented how the holy place was defiled. At one point, one of the Jews arose and tried to stop what was happening. And he was killed right there in the middle of the temple. Listen to the testimony of one former high priest. He said this, Certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations and of these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of these blood-shedding villains. And then Annasurus, Ananus, the high priest, went on to speak about how the Romans came and broke in upon the sacred customs of the Jews in the temple. So it was Romans, pagan people coming in and defiling the the holy place that took place in 70 A.D. And I do believe this is primarily what Jesus had in mind um, when he spoke about the abomination of desolation. Because Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, which we're reading here, the, the same words, a parallel account, he he had some more words that Jesus said that Mark just wrote it down a little bit differently. Luke 21:20 20 reads this. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Jerusalem surrounded by Roman armies, her desolation is at hand. And that indeed took place in 70 A.D. when the Romans came and attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In fact, so terrible were these times that Jesus told those in Judea, and Jerusalem, to flee to the mountains. In other words, when, these, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the Roman guard, you take off and go to the mountains. And in the same vein, in verse 15 and 16, it's a similar. He was on the housetop, must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And let the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. In other words, when you see that happening, you just take off and you get out of town going to get so bad. And uh, the sad reality is, in the ancient world, when trouble came, where would you go? The city was a place of safety. You'd get into the walls. And so what happened was many people came in and um, they actually perished there. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. But Jesus saying, no, go in and get your intuition and get out because you're going to be destroyed. And now there was one group that, that did get out. I want to tell you the story. These weren't Christians, okay? These were Jewish people who hated the Rome Romans, and they headed to a place in the wilderness called Masada. How many of you heard of Masada before? Good, many of you. I just want to tell you the story because it's a great story, and it kind of shows you a little bit of the hostility between the Jews and the Romans at this time. They went to Masada. Masada is a huge rock plateau. Um, seated southeast of Jerusalem, uh, down near the the Dead Sea in a barren desert place. And um, it's, it's a giant plateau. On the eastern edge of the plateau, it's about 1,300 feet up. On the western edge of the plateau, it's about 300 feet up. Every path up to this plateau is a very difficult walk and a difficult climb. And so in the first century B.C., it was made into a fortress. Twelve foot stone walls were built around the entire perimeter. The whole plateau is about maybe 20 football fields. Um, high, to- high towers were built, storehouses remained filled, arms were put there, large boulders were put up there so as to protect themselves, because once you got the place sealed, if people were coming up to attack, you just took a large boulder and did some bowling with some people so as to stop them from, from coming up. Well, Herod had decked out the place. they had also a huge cisterns, a couple of them that were filled with water so as to keep them so they had waters. And without, in a day without helicopters or planes, this place was really impenetrable. Herod had decked the place out full of supplies, it had a spa and a bathhouse and a palace, room for people to live. And because he was so paranoid, he wanted a place of refuge where he could go and be safe and no other foreign army could get him. Well, It so happened that when the Jews came upon, when the Romans came upon Jerusalem, um, this group of Jews fled and they went to Masada and they, by some reason, uh, somehow overpowered the unsuspecting Romans. They didn't know that they were attacking. They came up somehow and and kicked them out. And nine hundred and sixty seven Jewish rebels were up there on the top of Masada. And the Rome didn't like that. Because Rome was coming to destroy Jerusalem, had these people over there. And so it took 15,000 Roman troops to lay siege and attack these 967 Jews up on the top of Masada. And the only way that they would ever have a, a chance of capturing them was to build a giant siege ramp along the western side where the cliff was only about 300 feet high. And so what they did is they just started... Stacking rocks, stacking rocks on top of each other to build this ramp, which, by the way, is still there today. It's uh, several hundred yards long. It's uh, several hundred feet high by the time they get up to the ridge. And and all the time, as they were building this, it took them, by the way, three years to build this. As they were seeking to attack these. And all the time while they were doing this, right, the, the Jewish people on the top are pelting them with rocks, rolling rocks down, throwing at them, discouraging that. And so even the Romans enlisted some Jewish slaves to build so that they wouldn't hit their people, although they continued to do that for the sake of survival. And I'm sure as each day progressed, the Roman soldiers became more and more incensed with these rebels. And here they had this giant task of building this big ramp to the plateau. Finally, three years after they started building this ramp, 73 AD, the, the, wall, the, the ramp reached the wall close enough they could build a, a tower Enough to be able to protect themselves and to get up high enough. And then they began beating on the wall a battering ram, just boom, 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 trying to break through. And uh, they did break through. And uh, that was the night, then the next day, they were going to go and capture these Jews. And the Jews along Masada decided to all commit group suicide, like Jonestown, if you will. But they thought that a better option than being tortured and becoming Roman slaves. They set all the buildings on fire except the food storehouses because they wanted the Romans just to see that they had enough that they could have lasted up there for a long time past. And there were seven of the rebels who survived, two women and five children who didn't kill themselves. They told the story. Josephus has a complete account. Uh, I can't can't tell you the whole thing this morning, but I tell you that not to glamorize their death or justify their actions or anything, but to tell you the story of how strong was the resolve of the Romans against the Jewish people. And when they came in A.D. 70, they were coming to crush the city and they surrounded Jerusalem with armies. And and Jesus said, when that happens, you just leave. And he shows his compassion also here in verse 17 and 18. Woe to those who are pregnant in those days, who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. I mean, fleeing to the mountains is a difficult thing. And, and then fleeing when pregnant or having a nursing baby is a lot more difficult. Jesus says, pray that it won't be during winter, right during winter to make it cold and miserable. So Jesus even shows His compassion there for these people leaving. And then verse 19 describes the extent of the tribulation. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. Indeed, the times were terrible. Jesus said here the tribulation faced in the city at that time would be worse than any tribulation that anyone would face for all time. Now that's a pretty big statement. You say, well, did that happen in AD 70? And I say, well, maybe. I mean, there's some people who think the abomination of desolation all this is in the future. I think there's a strong case we made that that was very bad. Now, certainly, what took place in around Jerusalem can't be matched by the numbers of the Holocaust. Six million Jews were put to death during the reign of Stalin. Twenty million people systematically murdered. But Though the, the numbers may not match it, the, the terror of what took place might might match it. Josephus describes the suffering that took place in his book, The War of the Jews. It's good reading. It's incredible suffering. He said, during the siege, the Romans came around the city, cutting off everybody inside the outside world. So, this is a common military technique. What happens inside the city? Starvation starts happening. So, these people start... Start dying out, and they would do terrible things to each other to get a confession about where they might be hiding food. Family members against family members trying to figure out where food might be, and and just it was awful and nasty. I'm not even going to read some of the things. It was awful enough. But many of the Jews, when it got so bad inside, tried to escape, right? Because when it gets too bad, you you want to jump and get out, and many, perhaps most of those who attempted to escape were caught by the Romans, who were captured all around the city. And when they captured a Jew, they were whipped and tormented and tortured and then crucified. Crucified just outside the city wall so that everyone in the city can see all the people who tried to escape and who have been caught. Because, because Jerusalem could have just given themselves up, said, okay, Rome, okay, come and conquer us and we'll lay down we wouldn't be killed. But since they put up so much resistance, they were just torturing them and wanting them to... Um, to give up and, and there were about five hundred Jews each day were escaping, and five hundred Jews were being caught, and five hundred Jews every day were being crucified and Titus, the Roman general in charge of the destruction of Jerusalem, allowed it to continue because he hoped the Jews might perhaps yield at this sight of the crucified people. He wrote the soldiers, out of the wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught one After one way and another after another to the crosses by way of jest. When their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses. They didn't have any room anymore to put the crosses. And crosses were wanting for the bodies. They didn't have enough crosses to put all these people on in order to hang them to die. Such was the atrocities taking place in Jerusalem. When the abomination of desolation took place in A.D. 70 and Josephus, when he looked back at the war afterwards, he said that neither did any city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. In other words, Rome was just awful wicked. It appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to those of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. In other words, almost exact description. He's saying it was so bad; it's nothing's ever been as bad or will be as bad. That's exactly what Jesus said here in verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred from the beginning of creation which God created until now, nor ever will. Now that took place in AD 70. You know it, it may take place in the future, right before Christ comes back. I, I say that because some other other words in here. In fact. The, the Olivet Discourse is a very difficult portion of Scripture to interpret. In fact, I remember reading something from Kent Hughes. He said, nobody's figured out the Olivet Discourse, all right? So it's not like I'm coming today with with everything all figured out. But I, I do see what happened in AD 70 and do see a great tragedy there and how terrible the times were. But Jesus, like the groundhog, which says, right, winter's going to be for a time and then spring is coming. Let's get to the good news, huh? You ready for the good news? All in favor, say Amen. Amen. Well, we see the times will be terrible, but my second point here this morning, the elect will escape. The elect will escape. Look at verse 20. In verses 20 through 27, we have this word elect used three times here. Look at verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. We'll read verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. Here we come again, verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So we have the elect in verse 20, we have the elect in verse 22, and then in verse 27. talks about when Jesus comes. He will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect. From the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So you got three times mentioned here, the elect. Well, the first question, got who are the elect? They're like politicians or something? No, they're not politicians. The elect are the ones whom God chose before the foundation of the world to believe in Him. They are chosen. They are elect because God has chosen them. He's chosen to be gracious to them. He's chosen to give them faith. He's chosen to give them repentance. He's chosen to open their eyes to the glories of the gospel. He's chosen to be gracious to them in changing their hearts. In our prayer meeting this morning, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. About how the word of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, the message of the Messiah coming, not to rule and reign initially, but to come and be a servant and be sacrificed for our sins so that anyone who believes in him is forgiven. That message said is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And we see here, that's what God does with the elect. God, God changes their minds so that they see this message which comes across as foolishness to so many people begins to resonate in their heart. And they say, oh, Jesus died for my sins. And I see now how I can be justified before God. I don't have to do my work. I don't have to labor all that. I, I just trust in Him. And as a result of that, I love Him. I want to serve Him all the days of my life. In fact, I'll, I'll be willing to die for Him. That, that's what God does with the elect The elect are Christians, in other words. Those who have placed their faith and trust in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Not trusting in our own righteousness, but trusting in His. And for those, the elect, Jesus forecasts the future. And indeed, it's a a bright future indeed. How they will escape the coming judgment. Notice how Jesus cares for the elect. Right? Verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. In other words, so terrible the times would be. And God knows it, how terrible they are. It hasn't escaped his his notice. And had he just left things going, no flesh would have been saved. But he wanted to save the flesh of the elect. He wanted to keep them alive for some reason. So he shortened those days. What it means that he shortened those days, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe the Jews in Jerusalem gave up. Maybe some of the Romans, maybe they gave in earlier, I don't know exactly what it means, but it means that God has his care for his elect and he shortened these terrible days so that they wouldn't last more so that all the elect would be killed. Now, it doesn't mean that God will always protect the elect from death. Many have been martyred for their faith. Those in the church of Smyrna, God says this, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. But. But. Even the martyrs haven't escaped the sovereign plan of God. In Revelation chapter 6, we see the the voice of those who have been martyred for the testimony of God, which they have maintained. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, said that God would not pour forth His entire wrath upon the earth until the number of His elect who were to be martyred would be martyred. He's got a number of martyrs who are going to be killed. And then when that's done, God can pour out His wrath. But... But it shows even His care and His his kindness upon the elect, upon shortening these days. And that ought to really give us great comfort to know that God is mindful of us in times of distress. Even when the Romans were coming forth, pouring forth their wrath and their anger upon Jerusalem, that was not outside the watchful eye of God He observed the atrocities going on in the city of Jerusalem. Nothing escaped his notice. And he was mindful of his chosen ones. And he wasn't going to sit by and let them be destroyed. That's why he shortened the days, whatever that means. And so, I just say for you all, difficult days may be ahead for us. Trying times. But know that nothing escapes the sovereign eye of God. And though... I think much of this is speaking right to the disciples. There is something that is here in Mark chapter 13 that that carries on to every group of people facing difficulty and persecution. So we talked a month and a half ago um, about the persecution that would come in verses 9 through 13 about being handed over to governors and being brother and family handing over everybody and brother betraying brother to death, being hated by all by an account of my name. there's a way that that does apply to all martyrs for all time, all who are persecuted for all time, and it certainly comes to us as well. Jesus said, In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We can trust and rest in His overcoming the world. Well, we see the elect further described in 21 and 22 about the false Christ. People saying, Here's the Christ. There He is. And Jesus said, If anyone says that, don't believe Him. Because false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to mislead even the elect if possible. But take heed I've told you everything in advance. The picture here Jesus paints is deception. We have false Christs, we have false prophets, we have people saying, Oh, there's the Christ, oh come and come and see, look at him. And there are many who are convinced that these men are the real deal. And they're spreading the word about these false Christs. Hey, I found the Messiah. Why don't you come? Come to this meeting. Come to this group. I found this man. He he can do great signs. He can do great wonders. He can do miracles. You come and look. And, And they said, this man must be a prophet. Look at the wonderful signs that he does. And it says in verse 22, He does these signs in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect if possible now what we see in verse 5 or verse 6 that many will be misled so many are led after this but here's the promise the elect will never be misled i think that's the thrust here verse 22 in order to lead astray if possible the elect and again i think that's god's sovereign care over us upon our hearts and our minds is that, that, that what God says, He's so working in our lives, He works in our minds, He works in our hearts to be able to discern who is false and who is true. And so the elect will follow the true and won't be persuaded away by the false. That's what I think that's saying. So let's take heed to the words of Jesus. We don't have to search some place for the Christ or the, the, some prophet coming. When Jesus returns, Jesus said, it is going to be obvious to everybody. And that's the whole point here of Verse 24. You don't have to go away and tuck away some, some place to find the Christ. Jesus says, in those days after the tribulation, now this is what leads me to believe that some of this also might be future as well, is because he's talking about in those days, what days? The, the difficult persecuting days when false Christs are arising and maybe time of great abomination or desolation, maybe, maybe that. But in those days after the tribulation, because 24th or 27th hasn't happened yet, This hasn't historically been fulfilled. Some people think it has. I don't think it has. Because they interpret it symbolically, I take it at face value and read it just like it is. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, Jesus merely just quotes a bunch of Old Testament scriptures here, just combines them all together. This is a, a complete testimony of what Old Testament um, uh, witnesses that Jesus will return or the Messiah will return. And the idea is that when he returns, it's going to be very public. When Jesus returns, all the world will know. All they need to do is look to the sky. The sun will be darkened. It says the moon will not give forth its light because if the sun is dark and the moon is a reflector, it's not going to be there as well. Also, the stars will fall from the sky. And Jesus himself will return in the clouds. Now, that's, that's a big reason why the elect aren't deceived, because we all know that when Christ comes, we'll, we'll see him come. We don't have to go into some back door to find the Messiah. Though the rulers of the world may shake their fists at God in defiance, God is established and is anointed one on the throne. Everything's doing fine in His hand and He will return and set everything straight. That's what Psalm 2 says. And I'm not sure about you, but I'll go for the Christ who can darken the sun and the stars rather than the one who needs someone to point you out. He's over here. I take these words literally. I believe the darkening of the sun is not an eclipse. Okay? I believe it's the sun is put out. I don't think it happens in billions of years from now when the sun finally loses its fuel. I think it's going to take place when Jesus quenches the light of the sun, much like we blow out a flickering candle. Jesus is going to go, and the sun will go out. Of course, the moon will go out at that point as well. How the stars fall from the sky, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe they all are blown out as well. You know, like, you ever seen a 40-year-old man have 40 candles on his plate, and he goes, on his cake, and he goes, "Ah." You ever seen that? I think that's what Jesus does with all the stars of all the skies. He goes, "Ah." He doesn't have to take a big breath, though. Okay, He goes, "Ah." He can distinguish them just as easily as He created them. Remember in Genesis 1, the creation account? We read this, what happened on day 4. God made the two great lights, the sun, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. It's like the stars are billions and billions and all across the way. He says he made the stars, also, almost as like if the stars were an afterthought. And so here you might say he, he will quench the light of the sun, quench the light of the moon, and the stars also quench, and he carries on. It's not a problem for the Messiah. It's the power of Christ's return. In fact, that's what verse 26 says. When the Son of Man comes, he comes with great power and glory. This is the return of Jesus. And verse 26 it comes straight from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in which Daniel refers to... To Jesus being given a kingdom forever. This is when Jesus has a kingdom. Verse 13 of Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Here's God, the son being presented to God, the father. And this is what happens. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel 7, he's coming on the clouds. He's coming with the clouds with great power and glory. He's saying he's the sovereign one who's going to take rulership of the world and to whom the whole world must give an account. Now, there are many today who hear the words of Jesus and say, Yes he existed. Yes he was a man. There's debate about that years ago scholars all agree that Jesus was there. They say yes he was a man. He was a he was a fine teacher. He did many good things, but he's like everybody else. He is certainly not God. I'm not accountable to him. He certainly won't return. Right? He's in the grave. They haven't found his tomb because it's impossible to find because he rose from the dead. But they say he is there. But there's a day when Jesus will come and prove these people wrong. And I don't care how smart they seem today, Jesus is going to show that I'm the sovereign of the universe. I still am very much alive. He's going to come in power, but he's also going to come in care. Look at verse 27. Here's the care that he has. Then he will send forth the angels. And will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. And again, we see the elect mentioned, the angels gathering them together at the the command of God. God sending out the angels. They're going to come in and gather the elect. Now, these are gathered together and they will escape the wrath of God. I believe what Jesus is talking about here is called the rapture of the church. The word rapture comes from the Latin word rapturar, which means to capture, to seize, or to catch. It's mentioned once in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4 17 by name, <clears throat> to when the church is caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here's Jesus in the clouds, coming. He's gathering his elect people. Um, in, in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, he also got a trumpet. Counting there, just like in First Thessalonians. I mean, the parallels—they're amazing. And just talking about him gathering the people together. I think that this is talking about the rapture. Now, many people think there's a secret rapture, right? That Christians are just going to be gone. Like, whoo? Where'd they go? Hmm. I don't know where he went. Well. It's going to happen when the sun is darkened and the moon doesn't give its light and and everybody knows and sees. And so they say, oh, somebody's gone. What's happened? Well, the angel has gathered him. He's with Jesus now. And now I'm facing the wrath of the Lamb. I think that's what's taking place here with the rapture. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we see when these same signs are taking place. People are hiding themselves in the, in the, the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And, and they say to the rocks and the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? Because the Christians have been taken out. In fact, even in Revelation chapter 7, you see a great multitude, which no one could count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They're standing before the throne and they're worshiping the Lord, saying, Salvation and be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're, they're just lifting up worshiping. Where is that? I think that's the redeemed of humanity being brought up right there in Revelation chapter 7. But that is the great reality of life. We all have a meeting scheduled. It's on God's calendar. It may not be on on your calendar. You don't know when it will be. You don't know where it will be. But you have scheduled meeting with Jesus Christ to account for your life. Those who are gathered together by the angels will be with the Lord always with Him. Those who are left on the earth will be destroyed by His wrath physically and spiritually forever. This is the message of the Gospel. Where do you want to be on that day? I certainly want to be with Jesus. I don't want to be left on the earth. That's it's how you respond today that determines where you're going to be. If Christ should become your refuge and you're trusting in Christ alone, He's going to come and gather His elect. But if you're hating Him and spurning Him and do live in your own way, you'll face the wrath of the Lamb. These are glorious words, but they're sobering words. It's a little bit like um, when the military comes. If you're on the side of the military... Say you're, you're taken hostage someplace in Afghanistan or the U.S. military is coming, a sight of a tank and men with machine guns would be like, Hallelujah! Yes, I'm, they're my friends. I'm being rescued. But if you're an enemy of the United States and you see the same things, you will shriek in terror. And so it is. When Jesus comes back, if you're His friend, if you're the elect, it's every reason to rejoice. But if you're His enemy, every reason to fear. That's what the message of these words are. And the believer loves his appearing because he loves the king. Listen to what Paul said in Second Timothy 4, 8. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In other words, that there's this righteous crown that, that God has laid up for me that I'm... I'm going to get someday. It's not my own righteousness, Philippians 3. It's the, not my own righteousness derived from the law, but it's my righteousness given through faith in Christ the count righteousness. There's that crown. And, and it, it's laid up for me and it's laid up for me and for all who've loved His appearing. So I ask you, do you love His appearing? Are you looking forward to the, the gathering together with His elect? Are you looking forward to being there with Jesus? I, I remember a good illustration of what it means to long for the day to come. My undergraduate work was at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. And one of the long standing traditions at Knox College for well over 50 years now has been this tradition of flunk day. Now, I know some of you have told you this before, probably about eight years ago, I think I used this illustration. Um, Takes place every day, uh, I'm sorry, once every spring, one day in the spring, at Knox College, is called Flunk Day. Um, the idea is simple. You just, it's a little bit like Senior Skip Day, right? When the seniors kind of skip out of class. Except this is like a, a government sanction from the president, administrators down, Flunk Day. Total. Everyone, all classes are canceled. All scheduled events are canceled, and it's a party all day long. They bring in entertainment. They have movies that are scheduled throughout the day. They have outdoor barbecues. They have carnivals going on. There's a, a Ferris wheel I remember one time that they had. They have tug-of-war. They have mud pits. They have uh, giant air jump em johnnies. They have uh, sometimes bikes you can rent, uh, ice uh, rollerblades that you can rent, inflatable swimming pools, loud music. And all day long, all you hear from every happy flunk day. Happy Flunk Day. Happy Flunk Day. It's one of the the most joyous times when you're studying and all of a sudden Flunk Day happens. Now the catch is this. Nobody knows when Flunk Day would be. Nobody knows. It's planned only by a handful of students. These students are called friars. And uh, I can't remember how they're selected, but I think the handful of friars then select the committee then for the next year. And so I'm guessing like five people in the whole campus. We had about a thousand students. Five people in the whole campus knew what was going on. The president didn't know what was going on. None of the professors knew what was going on. It was all the students who planned this party. And uh, even you don't even know who these friars are. I mean, that's how, that's how secretive this thing. Now, Flunk Day would historically, traditionally start at 4 o'clock in the morning. People called friars begin running around campus blowing whistles. Woohoo! Flunk Day! Flunk Day! And the bell tower to Old Main would ding, ding, ding. At 4 o'clock in the morning. Here's what happened. Schedules were handed out for the day, activities for the day, banners put up, massive party happening at 4 o'clock in the morning, which it was a secular campus, okay? So um, you just think about drinking on an empty stomach. It was awful bad, okay? I'm not commending. I'm, the, the idea was wonderful, but how it, how it flushed out wasn't really good. Now, so think about what it did for us as students. We, during the spring semester, this this conversation went up. Every week, at least. So when do you think Flunk Day will be? Oh, well, I don't know. And they're the Flunk Day groupies, right? Who were They had all the schedules out. They had the athletic schedule, and they had the drama schedule, and they had the class, and the special speakers, and they trying to put them all in. And, and they had... Um, well, that might be a date there because nothing's much scheduled there. This might be a date here. or This might be a date here. And they had these target dates that they think might, might be it. Now, it's kind of tricky because sometimes special events were canceled. I remember a, a political science professor was flown all the way across the country to give a special guest lecture and came in on Flunk Day. And so just kind of joined the party, I guess, and never gave his lecture because no one would have remembered the lecture, that's for sure. Now, Um I remember on a couple of occasions, people thinking that tomorrow was flunk day. It had to be flunk day, is what they thought. And they reasoned, and I remember talking with them, and they said, yeah, it's got to be flunk day. And they got all this reasoning, all figured out how exactly it's flunk day. And, and they, they knew everything, and they sat around, right? They didn't do their homework, they started a party, right? At 10 o'clock at night, because they figured it was, it was uh, flunk day. And they were music, playing cards, enjoying their alcohol, and uh, boy, were they disappointed when 4 o'clock came along. They miss class anyway. I'm sure being up all night. Um, I, I remember some um, sometimes studying, thinking it was flunk day the next day. I, I remember I remember just anticipating for four o'clock in the morning, waiting for the the sound to, to ring. Say yes, it's flunk day. Good, I don't have any classes. That's going to be a, a good day. But I remember several times I was. Many times when I had a big test the next day, I was disappointed by the fact that Flunk Day didn't happen. I remember several occasions I had a Flunk Day scare. People would run around campus just on their own. They weren't friars. They'd yell, Flunk Day, Flunk Day. And they'd like wake everybody up. And, oh, is it really Flunk Day? And people come out, but, you know, they didn't hear old main bell ring in. They didn't know the banners. No, it's a hoax. It's It's not really Flunk Day. And so they had to go back to bed when they figured out it wasn't one. I remember one year the Friars didn't start at 4 a.m. They started at 5 a.m. Because there was kind of one day left and everyone was anticipating this day to be Flunk Day and 4 o'clock came around and people were saying, Flunk Day, but no. And then by the time it was about 5 o'clock, then they started whooping it up and said, Yeah, Flunk Day, it's here. So there's this big anticipation and and um, people are anticipating it. And every spring I receive an email. So if I send it out this spring, maybe you'll know what's going on. From the administration, the alumni relations, one, one year the message said this, Happy Flunk Day. Yes, it's Flunk Day. Music is streaming from windows and balconies across campus and students are outside and enjoying this beautiful April morning. We hope you can get away from the daily grind. Go outside, celebrate spring, and enjoy your own special Flunk Day. If not, take a mental break for a few minutes and reminisce about Flunk Days of the past. So think about what that does to all the college students in the spring. There's just this anticipation. There's this buzz. There's this talk. There's this hope. I think just like we ought to hope for Jesus coming. Longing and hoping that Jesus would come and that we could be with Him forever. Do you, do you long for Jesus? Do you long like the Knox College students long for a flunk day? Does it stir your soul? Do you look forward to that meeting? You know, the return of Christ upon the earth is called the blessed hope. Indeed, that is what we have. We have this blessed hope of Jesus coming back to fully redeem us from our sins, to bring us into His presence, to give us resurrection bodies so we can be with Him forever. All you need to do is read Revelation 7 and the joy that's in heaven and everything on earth pales in insignificance. In fact, by the way, any true believer, our true citizenship is in heaven, not upon earth. Philippians 3:20. Those who trust in Christ have a better and abiding possession. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34, a better and abiding possession in heaven. And Paul said there'll be glory to be revealed in heaven that far outweighs any of the persecutions and difficulties and troubles that we experience here on earth. When Christ comes, he's going to take us to a better place. What better thing would we have to believe. And, and it really comes about to His elect to believe. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you longing for that day? Let's pray together. Oh God, I, I pray that You would create in us a longing for Your return. That we might hear Your trumpet. We might hear the shark shout of the archangel. We might see You come on the clouds. We might be taken up in the glory with You. Jesus forecasted this in the future, that the difficult times to be first and then the the glory that's to be revealed later. And um, God, I, I pray that You would create a holy longing within us. I, I confess not having that myself, not thinking about these things as often as I should. Thank You for giving me the privilege to really think and dwell upon these things this week. Father, I pray that You would... Um, God, stir within each of us a desire. Thank You for caring for Your elect. That You will protect Your elect. We won't be deceived. You'll care for Your elect shortening days perhaps to protect us from from death. God, that You will also come back and and gather us to Yourself. What What a privileged people we are. Father, thank You for Jesus and His words. May they give... Encouragement to each one of us. And even as we have a, a potluck here after church. Um, Father, we, we thank you first of all for the the food that you've given. For the many hands that prepared it. How we can spend an hour in fellowship with each other. I pray that it, it might be heavenly. God, that it might draw us more and more to believe and trust our Savior. We might trust Jesus and what he said. Where these aren't, aren't words of an idle crazy person, O Lord. These are words of the Son of God who proved Himself by many acts and deeds and words and by raising from the dead. And we place our faith and trust there and in Him and in these words. So conform us, O Lord, to Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.